Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So beyond resilience and customer centricity, the key pattern that all of our guests cite as consistent across the most successful businesses is talent, specifically the practice of hiring, retaining, and empowering the very best team of people to help you achieve your goals. And there are few business leaders out there who know this better than Dominic Barton. Now, Dominic Barton is the global managing partner emeritus at McKinsey and today's podcast guest. And having sat at the helm of the world's premier management consulting firm for close to a decade, Dom has seen what it takes to build leading teams across the world's most successful companies. In addition to his work at McKinsey, Dom is also a trustee of the Brookings Institution, an adjunct professor at Tsinghua University, and a Rhodes Scholar. So it's no surprise that he brings a global perspective to scaling talent. And given McKinsey's business model is wholly dependent on its people, Dom recently penned a book alongside Ram Charan entitled Talent Wins. So in today's podcast, Dom and I discuss how exactly talent wins. Specifically, we dive into the structural building blocks found in McKinsey's culture and values that allow its people to achieve excellence. Additionally, Dom shares the key qualities he looks for in candidates that are applying to McKinsey and how junior talent should think about scaling to senior roles. Lastly, Dom shares the consistent patterns he's seen across his most successful clients through the lens of multiple economic cycles. So why don't we get started? Hey, Dom, how's it going? Very good. How are you doing? I am doing great. Thanks for taking some time. So why don't we start with some context on your career story and how you ended up joining McKinsey? Sure. Well, I might say that a common theme through it is actually not being clear about what it is that I wanted to do other than hoping to have some make a difference somewhere in the world. That was kind of the overarching goal. And it was like, what's the vehicle by which I could do that? And at first I thought it was academics, if you will. So I was very much on an academic path. I was finishing my MPhil in economics, which is like a two-year master's degree, which you then shift into a DPhil or PhD program in Oxford. And that's, I thought I would be a economist. And that's where I thought I could either work in emerging country, work, work for the IMF for the World Bank and work in economies that were transitioning. That's kind of what I thought what might be an interesting thing to do. And then while doing that, all of a sudden, I got sort of an offer for an interview with McKinsey, who I'd never heard of before. I had no idea what that firm was or what they did. The more I found out about it, the more suspicious I became. I was like, what do these people do? How can people with not a lot of experience be able to help advise leaders of businesses of what they should be doing? I found the idea that people would want advice in terms of what they were doing in a business from people who weren't spending all their time in that company odd. So I, it was more out of curiosity. But then when I met the people who were doing the interviews, who were McKinsey partners, I thought, wow, that sounded like really interesting work. And maybe I would do it for a couple of years to understand how CEOs thought about things and did things. That surely would help me on the academic side, because I didn't have much of that at all. It was mainly mathematics. That, that was what a sort of graduate work in economics was or is. So it was really a happenstance, if you will, and I thought it could be interesting. And then when I joined McKinsey, I really enjoyed the work, the nature of it, because you could make a difference in a small way quickly. And, you know, the ability to learn a ton about a whole range of different industries, learning about 
functions, picking up sort of trends, if you will, the fact that it was global. I really enjoyed it. So two years quickly became four years. I had a rule that every two years I would step back and say, is this the right? Am I working in the right place? Am I growing? Am I learning? Do I enjoy it? Do I like the people? Again, the two years to four years became 33 years. And so that was sort of how it started. I thought about leaving probably five or six times while I was at McKinsey, often for clients that I was working with. There were opportunities, but I felt I could sort of grow at a a steeper rate, just given the range of different experiences one could get and the range of different leaders you'd meet outside McKinsey through the work you're doing at McKinsey. So that was sort of meta story, if you will, of just, it, it was a place of a vehicle, if I might say, where I thought I could have some impact. And it was a really nice combination of, you have impact, but you also, it's based on knowledge or research. You have to which I love. I love knowledge building or research. And in fact, again, that it was global. So um, I should stop there before rambling, but that's kind of the gut of it. Wonderful. And you helped build McKinsey's brand into the global powerhouse that it is today. And that brand has really maintained itself as the gold standard for management consulting. So I'm curious, why exactly do you think that is, right? What about McKinsey truly creates meaningful and tangible differentiation? Well, I think that there's some outstanding other management consulting firms that are out there. I have a lot of respect for them. And I think what we tried to focus on, and that really comes from James O. McKinsey and then Marvin Bauer, who had an indelible imprint on the firm back in the 30s, 40s, 50s was really this inculcation of values. And I don't mean values in the sense of doing good and all of that. It was about the way we work, you know, the things like the obligation to dissent. It is you are not only have the right or privilege, if you will, to disagree and raise issues, you must do that. The notion that it was, this is about its client first. You have to do what's in the interest of the client, not yourself. And that sounds Maybe it sounds like motherhood and apple pie, but it actually means a lot when you're working with a client. It means you're telling truth to power. It's being independent. It's being willing to walk away from situations when you don't believe the impact is there, but always having that mindset. And those, those are drilled into people as soon as you join. They're reinforced all the time in stories that are told, you know, in sort of literally formalized occasions during the year, but also in sort of the regular Friday sessions that are held in the office or in training programs that everyone goes through. So these values were deeply embedded into people. And I think that that in the combination with the view that it's a partnership, which means you're, you know, the ideal organizing form is kind of you're working with eight to 20 partners, that's your McKinsey, who all have similar strong adherence to these values and an approach of how we serve clients and do things, that becomes very replicable, if you will. And the way it's done, it's like a social capital, if you will. It's a deep social capital where you're, that's reinforced in the group of partners that you work with. Those partners have their own eight to 20 that they work with. And so it's an organic, I always tried to use the phrase when I was leading the firm, it's a bit like graphene. It's thin, it's flat, but it's tight. It's very strongly held together. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you can move someone from South Korea to San Francisco or to Sao Paulo, and they will click immediately, even though their language skills may not be ideal. The way people work, the way the teams work, it's just, it's seamless. And I think that's really driven from the values. And then this very strong, common global evaluation system, you know, the way People are evaluated in the mid of every project they're on, at the end of every project, at the half-year point, the end-year point, on election to partner is very, very standardized in the best way of that, if you will. There's no nuance. It's not saying, you know, in China, we need to do emphasize this more than that compared to Boston. It is very much the same. And I think that keeps the culture together. So I don't don't know if I'm rambling here again, but I feel it is really around the values and the reinforcement of those values and the fact that it's small pods that are interrelated with all the other pods. So another thing I'd Mm -hmm. just say, when I joined the firm, there were probably 260 or 270 partners in the firm. That was in 1986. Today, we're electing classes of partners a year. But it feels the same. It felt like a very big firm in 1986. I knew people in Toronto, New York, the Great Lakes, but I knew the people I sort of worked with. But I felt an affinity with people in other parts, like here in Australia, where I hadn't traveled. I I felt linked. And that's not changed, even though now we have probably 2,100 partners in the firm. It can still feel small, if you will, because of that. Yeah. Actually, I love the parallels to Goldman as an institution. When I spent my time there, there were two things. You know, we always thought about we had the same Bloomberg terminals on our desks. We had, you know, the same access to information as everyone else. And we were competing with some really fantastic teams at other banks. And we had to ask ourselves, what was our differentiation? I think you hit on two key things there. Number one is the partnership model, which we thought was really genuinely differentiating and building a culture, which it sounds like it has at McKinsey as well. And then the second thing was around values of always putting the client first and putting the client's success on top of ours. Because in that way, when the client is successful, the firm is indirectly successful as well. But I think it's pretty tenuous at times to just throw things at values broadly and because it sounds a little bit hocus pocus, right? So I'd love if you could share maybe one or two case studies, maybe your favorite story that comes to mind around those values really coming to play. For sure. I mean, because I agree with you, values can sound like, again, motherhood and apple pie, if you will, right? And everyone has them. But I think it's the it's seeing them in action that kind of gets people fired up. And I think you can learn a lot through the story. So one was actually, I wasn't even involved in, but it really sunk into me, which was in Toronto. It was my first time. It was a values day. I'd been in the firm for eight months. And one of the senior partners got up and talked about a client that we were serving in Canada in 1983. And this company, the office wasn't very busy. We only actually had one client. And this client had six teams. So it was a very, very big client by any standard. And it was, in a sense, carrying the office. And what this senior partner, his name was Brian Schofield, I remember to this day vividly sort of said, you know, he was the key, the person leading the engagement, the partner in charge. And he said, we were doing an impact review after about nine months. And we actually were starting to get concerned that, you know, we were doing a lot of work, but it wasn't really having impact. And so we started to have conversations with the client about, you know, are we working on the right thing or what's happening? And it got to the point 
three months after that. So it's only a year. This is what's keeping the lights on in the office. This partner went to the CEO with the support of the other partners. There were only eight partners in the Toronto office at the time and said, you know, we were thinking about withdrawing because we're not having the impact. You know, we're very grateful for what you pay us, but we're not having impact and that's not who we are. So we think we should stop unless some things change. And the client got upset sort of saying, look, we're the ones that can fire you. You can't understand. We're not trying to fire you. We're just concerned that we're not having impact. We shouldn't do it. At the end of the day, long story short, we stopped working there, which meant we had no work. But this notion of that truly is putting client first when it not your economics, if you will. It was a sign. And those people were around, right? You could talk to those partners who were then sent away and some of the associates that were sent to different places. So again, I wasn't directly involved, but I remember it vividly, right? And so there's lots of stories about that. I saw it many times myself. I tried to do it myself. I remember when I moved to Korea, this was in 1996, 1997, just as the Asian financial crisis was, was coming in. And we had a kind of a similar situation to that one in Toronto where consulting wasn't really well known in Korea at that time. It actually, there was this, if you said McKinsey and then you you said that word quickly in Korean, it sounded like the equivalent of Kentucky Fried Chicken. So we were, you know, we didn't have a distinguished name. We didn't, and we, there was a client we were working with and it's Deu. That we were starting to work with them as an M&A transaction, and we found out about four days into the project that they had multiple sets of books, right? Sort of a, what was disclosed in the annual report, a packed set of books. And anyway, cut a long story short, we decided to obviously stop working there and said, we just can't, we don't work that way. The client got extremely angry and said, you know, you'll never work here again. This is not right. You don't understand how, or what's going on. And if he was willing... If that's the case, maybe we won't ever work there again. That, But there was kind of a decision to not work. Like values mean something when they cost you something. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, by the way, at McKinsey, we've got it right all the time. We've made mistakes. We've erred and all of that. But the strong culture is that there are these very bright red lines and you need to have the discussions and you stop doing it. So I, I could go on and on and on about the different examples of where these have happened. And often it is kind of what I would call truth to power, where you you call it out, it has a consequence, but the kind of firm rallies and moves on and says, no, this is what we do. And obviously you can't talk about those publicly, right? (laughs) You talk about them within the firm, but you don't talk about those publicly. And so often people don't see that what actually is, is happening. But that's one of the reasons why I think our alumni group is so strong. We're, it isn't though, as though we do much for our alumni when people leave. We want people to be able to get fulfilling roles and good jobs and all of that. So of course, we help as much as we can. But I think it's actually the experience is quite intense in that way that it sort of like a blueprint on people. That's what I think is probably the strongest part about the culture. And I'm glad you mentioned the alumni network here, as I actually sourced a few questions for the interview from the audience via Twitter. And a McKinsey alum, Sandeep Padada, asked a question around reputation. And he asks, one of McKinsey's competitive advantages is reputation, which benefits it from both a client-facing and recruiting perspective. So what are some structural or tactical ways that you've helped build that reputation? Yeah. And again, I say this with some trepidation because we have had our reputation issues and we actually have had through our history, if you will, right, that we 
we're not infallible. We make mistakes. We don't get it right. But I think, I think that first of all, this is a place where it's a meritocracy, and we try and live the culture of what we're telling we do with our clients internally. So again, the obligation to dissent. If you think the leader of the firm is not doing something right, you have the obligation to tell that person. And I can tell you when I was leading the firm, I got lots of emails, just conversations from people who'd just been, you know, two months in the firm that would tell me what I was doing wrong and with conviction, right? And not arrogance or anything. Just, and I think that that's a very important part of it. I think what is also critical is that because we're not a very well-known institution in the public eye, we like to keep every confidentiality is an extremely important value of the firm because we're doing very sensitive work with clients. They have to trust us. And what that means is we therefore don't say much. So sometimes when people were kind of this, who are these people and what do they do? I think what's important is that people get a chance to see McKinsey in non-traditional realms, if you will. And that's where one of the things I believe is quite important is in every community that we're involved in, you know, we should be involved in the community in some respect. It could be as it relates to the not-for-profit sector, it could be in relation to the development of the city, or it could be the country, whatever the place is, we should be giving and playing a role and, and so that people can kind of say, these people aren't the CIA or they're not some weird group of who, you know what I mean? That they see the kind of things that we do and how people behave and what they do. They're normal people. They're trying to make things happen, get it done. So I think our, well, I, I called it reach and relevance. It, it's very important that we play a role in trying to help develop the community and wherever we're working. It's, we must do that. It's in our interest to do it. And that can help deal with issues when there are reputational challenges. For example, if you so they're not some dark force or quite, we don't know who these people are and what they do. And I think we're going to have to do more of that because as we've become more significant, if you will, and the world has become much more transparent about wanting to know everything that's going on, that's something we're going to have to get better at. So that's an area that we've been trying to move on, probably not as fast as we needed to, but we are because people just, they want to know what this institution yeah. is and how we work. Yeah. And I think public perception is now more and more influential in corporate decision making where senior leaders are growing increasingly acute to the pushback that can come from a viral social media post around suppliers or customers. Yeah. So I look forward to watching the firm build a brand in that way. So then as you think about people as your differentiator, one of the most difficult problems I would imagine you face is in maintaining quality talent at scale. So how do you go about systematizing your hiring and retention of talent at a global scale? Right. Well, that, again, like the values, the recruiting it is extremely, I would just call it rigorous processes on how we do it. So for example, you know, who gets to do the recruiting? If you get made in charge of recruiting, that's probably one of the biggest signs that you're doing well in McKinsey, right? So it's a, it's not a, oh God, I've got to go do recruiting. It's a privilege to be able to do that, right? You're selected to be able to do it. So it's a very, very high priority in McKinsey is recruiting people, right? It's seen as a critical core capability and you want to be able to do that. The second is that, you know, the process by which we do recruiting 
you know, it's quite a detail. You get trained to do this. And when you do recruiting and you hear the discussions that go on, so you have, first of all, we would never recruit someone with only having done four interviews. Most people have to do somewhere in the order of 15 to 20 interviews. And, and sometimes we get feedback that, God, you guys are bureaucratic. There's so many people you have to interview to see. We, we will not change that because it's so important who we bring into the process that we're going to be very, very, very rigorous on that front. So you see a lot of people. And what I think is more interesting is what happens after the interviews are done, the debate that goes on. You know, there's typically a framing of it. This is, you know, Dominic Barton, we should, here's the case for hiring him. Here's the case for not hiring him. And there's a very intense debate around that based on the input from the different interviews that are done. It isn't sort of let's rack up the scores and, you know, Dominic's interviewed 15 people and nine out of six, you know, nine are in favor and six are, so let's go for it. There's actually, you put all that stuff on the table as input and then the debate begins, if you will. And that process of being in that debate, you learn about the process and how, what we're looking for and where it is. So when you are in a recruiting process, you're learning more and more and more every time you do that about what to look for, what questions to ask for what you didn't hear that may make you wonder about what's going on when a particular question's at, that, that sort of thing. So it, it becomes a process in and of itself, if you will. And I know one of the things we've done in the last five to seven years, we started more and more to recruit senior people from other firms. We never used to do that. It was a sense of we just want to grow people from within. I think that was a bit arrogant, to be honest, because there's phenomenal people outside McKinsey, there's phenomenal people, as I mentioned, in some of the other firms. But what would often happen is people say, well, I'm, you know, that process you go through is just wait, there's, I just not going to talk to that many people. And we just wouldn't relax that, you know, you may be a very, very senior person, another place, you're going to get, you know, 15 to 20 interviews. And if you don't want to do it, then let's not, we're not going to proceed. And I think that's actually good because it reinforces that discipline, the multiple judgment that's needed. So again, we're now, I think, if I have the latest, but I think we're sort of bringing in about 4,500 people a year. We look at, there are 800,000 people that apply or that we look at. And every single one of those 4,500 people is extremely, rig you know what I mean? We look, it's looked at as though we're only hiring one person. And that gets back to this, trying to make sure that we, even as you grow, you keep the standard extraordinarily high. And again, it's because it's small groups of partners with a very tight process that is sort of how we try and do it. Obviously, using technology more now than we did when I joined the firm. And um, for all the potential McKinsey candidates out there in the audience, what are the key qualities you look for in your best hires? There's a number of them. I'd say three. One is and I'll put it in this order, leadership, and I'll come back to it. Then the second is problem solving. And then the third is teamwork. Those are the three, and there's lots of stuff underneath those. But on leadership, what you're looking for is this someone who takes initiative, that will, that builds things, that tries to create things or make things better, takes sort of their own volition, not because they've been told. And you're looking for, that's more looking for record, if you will. And it's not because you became the head of the consulting club at a business school or whatever school, it, it may be that you helped set up a girl guides group in a community that you were in. The, it's looking for people who build things, take initiative. To me, it's about initiative taking. 
the problem solving one is it's not that you're great at math or logic or whatever. It's more how can you quickly disaggregate an issue or problem and then figure out a way to get to a solution. And so it's a combination of being able to disaggregate something into its parts, have some sort of creativity and logic approach. There isn't one way to get to an answer. And again, it's hard to describe it. You kind of know it when you see it, right? But and it's not formulaic because, again, people have strengths. Some are people are very, very creative. Some are very, very logical. But it's a what are the combination of attributes? And then the third is on people, which is what I look for there in particular. This may be more of my bias is are you a we person or an I person? What I mean by that is, you know, you can often you're talking with someone when they're using their so I did this, I did that, I did you sort of go wow this you did all that or whereas you see other people it's not really about them you're looking for people that are more on the selfless end of the spectrum than the selfish end that that's again not to say that we don't have all types and mckinsey is just we work in teams that's the core operating unit and if you don't like working with people and helping with people and you know the the group is bigger than the individual you can sense that pretty quickly with people. So those are kind of the three areas. And I, what I would often try and do, you do it through cases, is try and explore those three dimensions with cases or stories. Like, you know, tell me about tough periods you've had in your career to date. What were some of the setbacks? How did you deal with that? What are some things that really irritate you? You know, or you, you give someone a problem that's quite complex, doesn't have a lot of information. How many questions do they ask you, right? Do they push back on you on certain things? It's a holistic approach. Makes sense. And as I think about some of the challenges with scaling a people-based business, it's that to some degree, your top line revenue growth is tied to the number of people you hire, which therefore determines the number of clients you cover. So then given McKinsey's relative saturation within its core client base, which I would define as the global 5,000 as well as the bottleneck you have around scaling people, how do you think about top-line revenue growth? Well, we is sort of driven into the fact that we don't think about top-line revenue growth explicitly. Do you know what I mean? It's more about, and, and the other thing I would just say is, I don't think we're anywhere near saturation. You know, if you think, what, one of the things I, it's now public, so I'll mention it, but I one of the things I was keen on is getting people to recognize that it's a, massive world out there. And we typically used to just focus on 500 institutions. Then it became 2,000. Then we are, uh, my view is, why don't we think about 8,000 institutions that we would like to serve, that we felt are institutions where we could make a difference, where we would love to be able to drive it. We weren't nowhere close to that. So there is a massive opportunity to have impact out there. That's one thing I would just say. So we're nowhere near a saturation point. And I think the challenge is that, you know, you're for the work that we do, most of our work actually comes from reference. We're not very good marketers. We're actually very bad marketers. We're, we're terrible. You know, you, when you think about it, we have young people that come in with often very complicated charts and acronyms talking about improvement, and we charge a horrendous amount of money. That's not a good formula for winning you know, engagements from people that don't know who we are. So about 70% of our work comes from reference, right? People will say, wow. you know, I had McKinsey help me do this. You know, 
God damn it, they cost a lot of money and they did this and that, but this is what actually happened. And I would use them again. And I re- that's literally where most of our work comes from. You know, we're not required, obviously, by law. There's no law that requires McKinsey. We're not like the account. You, it's completely at the discretion of management. So we have to be very, very careful about quality. That's the quality and impact are fundamental. Otherwise, we're done. And by the way, there have been times in our history where we've not done good work in various parts of the world. I I remember at my wedding, it was in 1989, being told by someone in the wedding lineup, you guys did work for us in 1969 and it was useless. This is, I was, it was in my wedding and I was going, God, what is, <laughs> I wasn't at McKinsey. And this person said, you are at McKinsey, you are from McKinsey. So I don't care if you were seven years old when that happened. That was, uh, I've never forgotten it. And we probably overdid, we were overstaying our welcome at a client, whatever, that person remembered it 20 years later. And that, so negative is remembered as well as positive and nerve. And so, I think it's critical that we we just the key thing is to make sure we have the impact. We do, you know, there was a senior partner named Herb Hensler around our German office. And this is again where I try to bring it so there isn't an overall, there's no revenue target whatsoever. And there never has been. I do believe a growing firm is a more healthy firm, if you will, again, because of the opportunity. But again, the way it was to me sort of brought to life was that as a partner, you know, you're there to create opportunities for others. So you have to have clients. We're not a charity. You have to have clients. And Herb Hensler's rule was what he called a 248. You at any one point as a partner in the firm should be serving two clients. You should have four clients that you're in discussions with about potentially having work. And then eight that are kind of out that you wish you could serve, that you would like to serve. And it's kind of like managing a pipeline, right? But there's no there was you're not evaluated against a two four eight. Many people in McKinsey don't like that metric. I personally happen to like it. I was always nervous about how do I get clients and how does that work? And so it's done at the very micro level, if you will, at a partner level. And you know, if you have no clients or you don't seem to be able to keep clients, you won't last very long in the firm because we are a client serving organization. You have to have clients and we have to be paid because we are a commercial entity. But you do it in that sense of you're trying to build a practice. So you want to be careful about are you delivering because that it's McKinsey, but it's also you as an individual. Does this person deliver results and make a difference or not? And so that's kind of how we operationalize that, you know, the the notion of we are a yes, we are a a commercial entity at the end of the day we have to be paid but it's it's in that manner not a directive from the top that says we have to grow at x or y percent because people will fight back like you won't believe on that and one thing i want to come back to that you said is if you're not serving clients then you're likely not a good fit so then as we talk about talent i think more times than we like to admit we see junior talent fail to scale where let's say you have an associate or an analyst that is phenomenal at the analytical and the execution side of the business, but then as he or she gets promoted, starts to struggle as a senior leader, right? Either because they're not the best manager or because they're not the most commercial and winning clients. So as you've seen people succeed and grow into those roles, as well as people who have failed to scale, what were some key reasons why some have failed to make that leap? 
first of all, I think everyone has different strengths, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you have to like working with senior executives. You have to be able to articulate what it is that you want to do and why it adds value and so forth. There's certain minimums on that, but most people have that. I think the issue is that we all have areas that we then like to go deeper on. And I think what we tried to do and try and do at McKinsey is we have some people who love doing research and we need that because we are also a knowledge-based organization. You know, we don't make it up every time we go into a client. We have a perspective on how to do marketing or how to do strategy or how to take operational costs out of a company. So there are people who have actually spent a lot of time developing a capability and insight, and they are rewarded for that. You know, the way we look at it is, this is an old two-page approach, front page, back page. The front page is, who are the clients that you're serving and what impact are you having? The back page is, how are you building the firm? It may be in recruiting, it may be in knowledge management, it may be in a governance role that you're playing, but you have to do the front page and the back page, right? But people's strengths on the back page to do the front page vary quite a lot. They're, again, people that love doing research. There are people, by the way, like, for example, if I just take myself as an example, I think I was very good about introducing what we do and the opportunity of what we the value that we create and whatever, I am a terrible negotiator. I would give away the farm in a second because I just want to get it to work. So often, there's many, many weaknesses I would have, but that's where partnership comes in. So I would always work with a partner who was very good at negotiating. And it was very clear. I would say, And I would literally tell the clients that I'm not going to negotiate because I'm useless. I'm not qualified. My friend here, Steve, is much better at that, also smarter than me in these areas. And so you you need to work in teams. And I found that, again, because we have our spikes, if you will, about what we're good at, and we have our, our weaknesses. So some of our strongest client leaders were actually people who had very, very, they were deep on the research, but not so great on the client interface side. They'd still be rewarded, highly rewarded. Does that make sense? Yeah, that completely makes sense. So then, Dom, shifting towards the last part of the podcast here, you co-authored a book called Talent Wins, which we've been alluding to different parts of throughout this conversation. So I'd love if you could share with the audience more on the book itself and its key takeaways. Sure. Well, the genesis of the book actually came from a conversation that I had with Ram Sharan, right, who does, he basically is a CEO counselor. He's kind of like a Yoda who travels the world serving CEOs. And we'd known each other and knew of each other, but he'd heard, I had this rule when I was leading in McKinsey that I had to meet two CEOs or leaders a day, no matter what, which I did. So I met about 3,600. And he basically came to me at one point and said, what did you learn from those discussions? And I, one of the two sets of questions I would ask these leaders, they were primarily CEOs, but again, also government leaders and NGO leaders, was one, if you could teach yourself your younger self, three things, what would they be? You know, given that you're now a leader, experienced as a leader, what do you wish you'd known as you were growing up as a leader? And then I would ask, the second question was, you know, what are the three things that excite you or worry you the most? And what I heard in answer to the first question overwhelmingly around the world, didn't matter, it was a growing company, a restructuring company, whatever, was I would have spent more time on people. I would have more specifically taken people out faster. It's always harder to do that than what it seems, but I, I should have done it sooner. 
whenever I did it, I wish I did it sooner. I would have given younger people much more opportunity earlier. Even if they're not polished or seemingly qualified, I would have thrown them in the swimming pool to see if they swim versus testing them, you know, that they can swim before they go into the pool. And, and I frankly just would have spent more time with people, on people, because that's where it, what it all comes down to. And what Ram said was that that's exactly what he, it always came down to that in the discussions he was having. And then Dennis Carey from Corn Ferry, who knew Ram more than he knew me, came in and that from a lot of the CEO searches and board searches brought that perspective. So that that was kind of the genesis of it, saying, well, there's there's a lot here. And, and I'm just embarrassed it's taken. It took it was sort of my last book, if you will. It should have been my first one. But <laughs> it was so that was the genesis of it. And, and it's really the sense that we spend a huge amount of resources in organizations, especially corporations focused on the finance, the capital allocation, right? Where, how, you know, what's the upside opportunity in improving the performance of this company or what's the potential growth? And we do thousands of pages of analyses on that. And then we get down to the people. It's kind of like an afterthought. It's kind of, you know, John, is he, we have like a circle under him, half filled, quarter filled, good guy or not. <laughs> It's just a joke, the sort of rigor that we put to the people side as compared to the financial side. And that's where we thought we needed to, you know, delve more into that. And again, without rambling on here too much, what we put, we sort of, so Ram actually suggested, why don't we write about this? We wrote about it in the Harvard Business Review and it wrote an article. It became a top 10 read article. I actually think not anywhere because of the quality of it, just because the topic resonated. I don't think our substance was that great, but the, but the topic resonated because obviously other leaders think about this. And that's when we decided, okay, let's do some more research. And that's when HBR said, you, you guys should put this into a book. And then we went rigorous, if you will. We, we got looked at 60 companies that we thought were and are actually talent-driven. What is it about them? So we then went from I would argue more high level superficial view based on experience to trying to be more rigorous about it. And that was then how the book came out. And as you think about looking into those 60 companies, what were some of the key patterns you found through all of that research? There were a number of things. There are sort of eight things which I could rattle off at the end, which will give sort of the synthesis of a book in 30 seconds. But I think that the core element was this notion of talent to value. That again, people allocation is even more critical than capital allocation. I think it's a well-known, established fact that high-performing organizations reallocate their capital much more significantly than their peers. Right? They're they're just very disciplined about where they're putting their investment dollars, if you will. Right? In terms of growth and shutting down things that are not working, and that's hard to do because that means you're taking away capital from people. And we found in the talent first organizations, they do that with people and they're even more driven about it on the people side than the capital side. Where is the value improvement opportunity in the company or where's the distortion positively that you want to make in your organization? It can be a public sector organization or an NGO. And then do you have the right people in those critical roles to be able to drive it? So the, the core essence to me is talent to value. And what we found was that it's a very small number of roles that actually drive the bulk of the 
value improvement. Ram, it was, I really credit Ram Sharan for the notion. He said, look, there's, in my view, it's 2% of the talent that actually drives a lot of the value at any given particular time. It doesn't mean the 98% don't matter. They do. But if you're talking about a delta, right, every organization is trying to improve itself. The core of that improvement area will come from 2%. But it was a it was his gut number, and, and we used to have lots of debates. Again, back to the oblig, I'd say, Ram, you have no base. That's your gut view. What's the basis? You have no. We get into big arguments about this. It turned. We've now done about 150 projects on this whole talent to value, and it turns out we're finding that it's between 40 and 50 roles in organization, and that might include companies with 30, 50,000 people account for over 80% of the value improvement. So it's mm. less than 2%. So the core element is this talent to value. But then we found other, there's eight things if you want, I could rattle through, but the talent to value is probably the gut of it. Yeah. Just really quickly then, what are the other eight things? One is what we call the, this notion of a G3, which is that the CEO, CFO, and CHRO are meeting regularly. In these 60 companies, that often meant weekly. And they're thinking again about it. The CEO believes, obviously, in the people side. If the CEO doesn't believe that, forget about everything else. The CEO needs to be the chief people officer type of thing. But it's a this notion of a G3, CEO, CFO, CHRO, mm -hmm. CEO, capital allocator, people allocator, together in sync. The second is to identify that 2%, or now what we would say is the 40 to 50 roles that, that are going to drive most of the value. And you can do that through a analytical approach. What are the, identify those 2% or, or 40 roles that are going to drive the value. And often those roles, by the way, are, are N minus 2, N minus 4. They're deeper into the organization. They're not at the top sort of 10 people. The third is you know, the board has to be completely engaged on talent. Most boards spend roughly 5% of their time on talent. Often it's around succession. We think boards need to be spending time on talent all the time. An organization like ING, it's every board meeting, uh, there's discussions on talent, whether it be the, you know, the 40 roles, uh, succession, why people are leaving, diversity. There's a whole range of topics, but it's got to be a regular part of the board dialogue. A fourth area is embedding agile. Agile has become a buzzword, but it's my simple-minded view. Agile is about getting people from different silos in an organization working together to solve sort of an integrated problem. And you can do it at a, for example, at a digital level where you're trying to improve a particular customer experience, or it can be done at the entire organizational level. Probably the biggest agile example I've ever seen is the higher the Chinese white goods manufacturer that kind of totally transformed themselves from a classic pyramid-based, you know, 80,000-person organization into a complete agile organization with 2,000 separate units. It's a whole story in itself, what they did. But again, this notion of how to bring agile into your organization is critical. The fifth is leveraging the new digital tools that are available. That One of the and you'd know this better than I would, John, but what, uh, an area where there's a lot of venture capital money going into is actually HR analytics. Again, it's not surprising because of the importance of talent, but much like you know the, the CFO role didn't exist really before the 1960s, 
And um, we think it's always been there. It wasn't always there. It, it's an accounting department that became strategic. And in my view, it's because of the availability of spreadsheets and the ability to do scenario analyses and so forth. That made accounting, which was a critical part of a company, more strategic because you could, what if we did this or that or bought this or that or sold this or that? You could run scenarios. You can apply that now on the HR side like we've never done before. We're not able to do that five to seven years ago. The sixth is to is that the HR function has to be elevated. There's a whole bunch of dimensions to that. One is in many organizations, the HR function is not on the same floor as the executive floor. It's on a different level. It's seen as admin or, you know, once we figured it all out, let's bring in HR. And back to the G3, that HR be at the table right with the, you know, again, the CFO and the CEO. And even who you put into an HR role, often, you know, having a business background is a good thing to have before you even get into HR. But we also see in some of the in the 60 companies, if you want to be a business line leader or eventually a CEO, you have to have spent time in HR because it's got its own analytics and depth of capability. The seventh is the how can you unleash? We think there's a huge amount of, of unleashing of talent more broadly. It's not just the 2% or the 40 roles. There are ways to unleash the full capabilities of people in organizations. And there's a lot of tools around that. It's measured often by engagement. You know, Gallup has, a, has very good measures around that. Some organizations like SAP actually measure the bottom line impact of one percentage point improvement of engagement. That's how kind of rigorous their people analytics are. But there's a lot to be done there. And finally, the eighth one is just like in with a, a CFO would have a have an M&A approach to looking at different companies or assets that are out there to buy or sell. We think that HR needs to do that on the talent side. What is the M&A strategy for talent aqua hires? And again, a lot of and you know this better than I would, John. A lot of a lot of technology companies. That's just part and parcel of it. Aqua hires. You see it. I think Google. We looked at has bought a whole bunch of companies, most of which they've actually shut the businesses down. They were looking for the engineer, so the or the talent that was in there to bring into the organization, not the business. Yeah. So, what is the M and A strategy for talent that you have in your organization? Who, who are your competitors? 40 to 50 top roles that are driving a lot of the value there, that type of thing. So sorry, long-winded. That's really the book. Well, I really love that summary, Dom. And I really enjoy your perspective around inorganic growth. As I actually hadn't really thought much about M&A just within the context of talent. I'd only really thought about that paired on to the context of product or geography or customer base, as opposed to solely acquiring just for the sake of talent. So I really like that idea of augmenting your organic people growth with that inorganic M&A driven recruiting. So then, Dom, I've got one last question for you here, which centers around the title of the podcast, Pattern Recognition. I'm curious, having served many billion dollar clients across the world, across multiple economic cycles, what are the consistent patterns you see across your most successful clients? A couple of things come to mind on the patterns. One is high ambition. Second is intense curiosity mm. you know it, always looking for are there ways we can be doing things better by the way it's not just within our own industry it could be in another industry open to meeting different people but the sort of curiosity is a core element of it and then the third is discipline you know that there's a rigor to some of the critical processes it might be around 
people. It may be around their investment decisions. It may be around their planning approach. But there's a there's a rigor, a hardcore, like a performance ethic, if you will. And again, where that focus is will vary depending on the particular type of company it is. But there's a rigor to it. So those would be just off the top of my head three areas I would think about on the pattern side. That's great. Well, Dom, thanks for joining the show. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you on this. Once again, a big thank you to Dom for joining us today. I've included quite a few resources in today's show notes, including how exactly one should think about applying to McKenzie, which can be found on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com. Now, we've got a whole host of really great guests joining the show in the coming weeks, including Jake Schwartz at General Assembly and Sophia Amoruso at Girlboss. So I'd love if you could tweet your questions at me and I can give you a shout out during those interviews. You can find me on Twitter at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.